0: what Holy Scripture says. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk "'nor crude joking, which are out of place, "'but instead let there be thanksgiving. "'For you may be sure of this, "'that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure "'or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, "'has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. "'Let no one deceive you with empty words, "'for because of these things the wrath of God "'comes upon the sons of disobedience.'" This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Friends, now that I'm here under this tent, I just want to say how nice it is to be under a tent when it's raining, uh, which is also my invitation to you. It looks like there may be scattered showers for the next 20 minutes or so. And please feel free to take cover. Uh, The tents look a little bit crowded please bring an umbrella. If you have an umbrella under the tent, maybe you could give your umbrella to someone who's not under a tent. It doesn't look like it's going to be too bad, but it is going to possibly rain. And you don't offend me if you get up and walk out because it's raining. Would you pray with me? And then we'll look to God's word together. Our Father, we're very grateful to you for all your mercies, in particular uh, what we have just sung, that If we look to Jesus, if we really look to the Savior, uh, we can defeat these temptations that so frequently attack. We know we've got an enemy inside our flesh. We've got an enemy on the outside, the devil, and we swim in enemy waters, the world. And so um, if we're not fighting, something's wrong in the Christian life. It is a constant battle to live a pure and holy life. And I'm asking, Lord, on this particular day that you would do a very, very good work in our church family. Uh, You'd help us to deal with our sins rightly and help us to be honest with one another and with you. We pray this in the name of Jesus, amen. Well, I don't know a whole lot about what we used to call European football or soccer, uh, but I am a sports fan, and if you're watching sporting news over the last couple of weeks, you would have noticed that Cristiano Ronaldo uh, was returned to Manchester United, a place where he had had a stellar career. And I want you to imagine with me that at the next Manchester derby, when Manchester United plays Manchester City... I want you to imagine with me that Ronaldo comes out wearing the colors, the uniform of the arc rival Manchester City. And so it's his first game back with United, but he's got the wrong uniform on, and he just runs out onto the field with the wrong jersey. And then when the game starts, not only is he wearing the wrong jersey. But he's actually passing the ball to the Man City players. In fact, he even runs down and scores an own goal. Now, if you're a player on Manchester United, you would say, Ronaldo, what are you doing? You need to put on the right uniform and you need to play for our team. When a person claims to be on team Jesus, and lives like they're on team world, the same thing could be said. They're wearing the wrong colors. They're living the wrong way. A few weeks ago, I introduced you to Sin Encyclopedia, Volume 1. If you've got your Bible, open it there to Ephesians, Chapter 5. Uh, Back in Chapter 4, I demonstrated to you this this sort of listing of sins. And it's interesting because Paul's writing to Christians and he's saying Christians can commit all these terrible sins and he's telling them that so that they will what? So that they'll stop, so that they won't. So we saw the sin of falsehood, the sin of stealing, the sin of sinful anger, the sin of bad words or bad language, the sin of being contentious. And I've been trying to show you that the Christian life is a process of becoming who you are in Christ. It's a question of identity. And you need to know your true identity and then act in accordance with that identity. Every Christian should be completely dissatisfied with acting out of sync with their true identity. As Paul wrote earlier, In this letter to the Ephesians, uh, he said Christians are chosen by God, saved by God, loved by God. But they are not chosen, saved, and loved so that they can go on their merry sinning ways. Remember, you are chosen to what? To be holy. You are saved to do good works. You are loved in order to love other people. God saves you in order to make you more like him. He's he's remaking you into what you were originally designed to be, a being who reflects what God is like to the rest of creation. And that's why when we get to chapter 5 of Ephesians, we read this. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators. What's an imitator? Be a copycat. Be an imitator of God as beloved children. Be God mimics. Just like children imitate their parents. Kids, I don't know if you know this. This is why you grew up speaking the same language that is spoken in your home because you're just copying. And, and mom and dad would say mama and eventually you said mama or whatever your version is, and papa and papa and you were a mimic, you were a copy. And here we are told as Christians to imitate, to mimic, to copy our heavenly father. Specifically, we're to imitate God by living a life of love. Walk in love, he says. Let your your whole life be motivated by and marked by love. What kind of love? The real kind, the Christian kind, the kind that requires you to die. Look at verse 2. And be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us. There's your standard and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, sacrifice has become something of a sanitized word in our Christian lingo. You show up on some Saturday morning to help a brother move, and he puts his arm around you and says, brother, I just want to thank you for your sacrifice. That's not what sacrifice means to you if you're a sheep. Sacrifice equaled death, getting slaughtered. Your your blood being poured out as an offering for sin. And it's in that category that Paul is using this word. Jesus Christ was actually sacrificed for us in a very real sense. He died for us. It was a real death. And Paul says that his sacrifice, Christ's sacrifice, was a fragrant offering that means it's a it's a metaphor it means it's it pleased God it was enough It satisfied and now this becomes our standard for what Christian love is Christian love is self sacrifice Christian love is self death and self sacrifice is the exact opposite of self indulgence Self-indulgence is the thing that marks people of the world, in particular when it comes to their sexuality. And so the apostle transitions from speaking of the fragrant odor of Christ's self-sacrifice to the pungent stench of sexual self-indulgence. And it's these sexual sins that fill out volume two of our sin encyclopedia, things Christians must not do. Again, Paul's writing to Christians. He says, apparently Christians are doing these things, but it should not be. So category one is this, the sins of sexual acts. Verse three, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. So Paul lists here three sexual sins that men and women commit. It's not an exhaustive list. It's rather sweeping, but it's not exhaustive. The first one is this, sexual immorality, which is the broadest term in your Bible for sexual sin. This term covers all the bases. Sexual immorality is any sexual activity of any kind outside of the covenant of a loving marriage Between a male and a female. I'm going to stay my definition again. Sexual immorality is any sexual activity of any kind outside of the covenant of loving marriage between a male and a female. The word is sometimes translated fornication. It is the Greek word porneia, from which we get pornography, which is always sinful. Sexual immorality is any sexual act you would be ashamed to do in front of God. Then the second word, impurity. This word is sometimes translated uncleanness. And Paul often uses it in reference to sexual sins. If you want to flip back to Romans chapter 1, I'll just read verse 24. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Now here in Romans, Paul lists homosexual acts as unclean or impure before God as just one example of sexual impurity. In Ephesians, he's focusing on heterosexual impurity. In fact, earlier in Ephesians, Paul uses this word "impurity" to summarize every kind of sexual perversion. And so speaking here now in Ephesians chapter four, of, of people who are not yet Christians, he says this, Ephesians 4:19, "They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity." What a phrase. Remember that word, greedy. One of the most profound passages, if you've got your Bible, look at Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. It's just uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. That's forward. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. And you'll find this word impurity. It's surrounded by a whole vocabulary of words describing sexual sin. Put to death, therefore, Paul writing to Christians, Kill, mortify, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Here are the things. Sexual immorality, we looked at that already. Impurity, there's the word we're looking at now. Passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. If you've seen an iceberg before, you know that what you see above the surface of the water is very small in comparison to the rest of that mass of ice. And I think what you have going on here in Colossians chapter 3 verse 5 is Paul's iceberg of sexual sin. So the actual acting out of sexual immorality, that's at the top, that's what's exposed and seen. But like an iceberg, the great mass of sin undergirding that act, that acting out, it's below the surface. So impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry, covetousness and idolatry linked together. Remember that too, because we're going to see it again in a moment. I'm just showing you this verse to say a couple of things that that, the acting out is rooted in something, a lot of things. People just don't suddenly commit adultery one day. There's a lot of things going on in the heart before that. That's the tip of the iceberg. And you'll see that at the very base, the sort of large mass at the bottom in Colossians 3, 5, there is covetousness, which is idolatry. Now in the middle is our word impurity. And so impurity refers here to sins of a sexual nature, sometimes as an action, sometimes as fantasies, plans, or machinations, imaginations of the heart, which might be why, when you think about it, people speak of feeling dirty after they have sinned sexually. It's unclean, impure. There's a third word, covetousness. Now, you might read that word covetousness and think, well, that's not immediately obvious that Paul is talking about sexual sin here. To covet means to illicitly desire something that's not yours. To illicitly desire something that's not yours. But the entire context here is of sexual sin, right? And when you think about it, the original prohibition against coveting had a sexual element to it. So the 10th the commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's what? Wife. That's interesting because in the 7th commandment, God has already forbidden adultery. But now comes the stab of the heart in the 10th commandment. You shall not even look longingly at her. Jesus, of course, made this even more clear. You've heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That's crucial to see. The person who sexually fantasizes about another person is in one sense just as guilty before God as the person who hops in somebody else's bed. That's just one of the reasons we know pornography is a sin. It's not just a dirty or a private habit. You are coveting, which ends up being idolatry, the worshiping of an idol. I told you that Paul makes this coveting idolatry connection. You see it there in verse 5. You may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. What's an idolater? An idolater is a person who worships an idol. What is an idol? An idol is a false god. Look, when a man cuts down a tree and carves a face into it, and sticks the stump in his backyard and then bows down to that stump, he doesn't actually believe the piece of wood is his God. Rather, the piece of wood represents his God to him. It is the idol. And whether he's genuflecting before it or putting food in front of that stump, it's his way to try and get the God that the stump represents to do something for him fundamentally he's trying to manipulate his false deity to make him happy. Now you may look over your fence at your neighbor bowing down to a stump in his backyard or a statue in a cathedral and think, oh, what a fool. And when God looks at you hunched over your screen or your erotic novel and indulging yourself, he thinks the same. What folly. In both cases, you are worshiping a false god. False meaning it is not real. It does not actually exist. These are gods of your own imagination, and that's key. You're actually just worshiping you. That image that you're staring at is just an idol. It represents to you the lusts of your selfish heart. You are giving it your worship in order to gratify yourself. You love you. Every sexual sin is a declaration of independence from God. It is a declaration of self-love. Which is why Paul insists that these things must not even be named among Christians. Verse 3, sexual immorality, all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. He doesn't mean by this that we have to hide our sins from each other or that I'm sinning right now by talking about it. He wrote about it. It's in the Bible. He means sins like this ought never happen in the church community. They should be unheard of among the members of Grace Fellowship Church. calls the Christians here in verse 3, saints. You know what a saint is? A holy one. That's very deliberate. It is entirely unfitting. It is entirely improper for a holy one to act in this perverse and self-gratifying way. It's the opposite of love, and hence the opposite of God. God who is perfectly holy, the God that we're supposed to be copying and mimicking. When you sexually sin, you act like a businessman in a clown suit. The clothes don't fit. The outfit is inappropriate. Imagine with me that our Lord Jesus showed up at Grace Fellowship Church today. Good day. (laughs) And he doesn't say much, but he erects a large screen. Very large screen. He says, I'm now going to display all the sexual sins of every member of Of Grace Fellowship Church from the last week. What would that screen look like? Would it be blank? Because that would be fitting, that would be proper for Christians. More on this later. Number two, the sins of sexual words. We maybe think less about this one than we should. Verse 4, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. There are three terms here as well. And again, there's a bit of overlap between them, but they all have to do with sins of sexual speech. Potty mind leads to a potty mouth. First one, filthiness. Filthiness refers to obscene talk, indecent talk. It's the most general of the three terms. It captures any kind of speech with sexual overtones or promiscuous descriptions. Filthiness. The second is foolish talk, moron logia. Stupid talk. But again, contextually, this is sexually insane speech. It is saying or writing or texting or commenting things that are sexually silly or rude or perverse. Not only is there foolish talk, there is crude joking, vulgar humor. All that trivializes or demeans in the sexual realm. It should be clear, Paul's not prohibiting all humor here. He's just prohibiting vulgar humor. And this kind of talk is the opposite of appropriate Christian behavior. Grab your umbrellas. While you're getting your umbrella or if you're under the tent and able, turn to Hebrews chapter 13 and verse four. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse four. Here comes Hebrews 13, 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Friends, you want to surprise people at work this week? You could tell them you sat through a service in the pouring rain. It might be surprising. Or you could just tell them how much you love your spouse. You could make a commitment to never say anything wrong about your spouse. Or the next time somebody around the water cooler or the lunchroom is making a sexually perverse joke, you could not laugh. These are the kinds of things that Paul is forbidding. I I don't think I want to go into this much further than this. I I expect you know what I mean and who I mean when you put these three words together. It's the man or the woman who always turns every conversation sexual. It's the person who likes to make others feel uncomfortable by their sexually perverse speech. It's the person who always has to turn everything into sexual innuendos, sexual joking. I don't have time to lean into this this morning, but I think a good case can be made that this standard of sexual purity must also control your entertainment choices. Are you cheering for adulterers in the movies that you like? Are you laughing along with marriage bed mockers in your videos? I walked past a river this week after a really big rainfall, and uh, the river was, we stopped, Will and I were together, we stopped and looked at the river, it was just, you couldn't hardly see, you couldn't see anything, it was just full of mud, because there'd been a large rainfall, and everything had washed down and drained into the river. Is your river getting polluted every night by your screens? Because a river is going to carry all that out to the lake. And, and your life, if it's polluted, to it's what, what goes in is what comes out. Paul says this kind of sexually perverse speech is out of place in the household of God. That, that's just another word for improper. Both of these words that he uses, they mean this kind of behavior, this acting out, and this kind of speech is not fitting. It doesn't match being holy. It doesn't mel- match being self-sacrificing. And it is certainly not full of love. And it's this idea of impropriety, of of not fitting with following God, that, that should be our first motivation when it comes to ridding our lives of all sexual acting out and sexually perverse speech. But I'm going to give you a second and a far more terrifying reason to stop today. Before I tell you that, can I just be frank? The Bible talks a lot about our sexuality. God invented sexuality. He's not ashamed of it. He's not scared of it. But humans have struggled to live sexually pure since the fall. So I assume, on the one hand, that after months of being locked up in a pandemic, maybe slightly out of fellowship, maybe fomented by the nightly news, that there's a bunch of people here today who are not doing great with their sexual purity. And I have enough conversations with brothers and sisters to know that's the case. More than that, we live in a sexually bizarre world. It is hypersexualized. That's the water in which we swim. And I fear that just like we might start to tolerate sins like sinful anger, sins like falsehood, uh, sins like we looked at before, so we might begin to tolerate sins of sexual immorality. So let me point out for you this morning what you will get if you refuse to repent from your sins of sexual immorality. Number three, the reward for sexual sinning. First reward is no heaven. Look, Paul says that if your actions do not fit with the kingdom, then you as a person have no citizenship in the kingdom. Verse five, you may be sure of this, that everyone, what's that word? Everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now let me slow down here a bit and point something out to you. Paul has just taken the three verbs of verse 3 and he's made them nouns in verse 5. So if I, if I come to you, what do you call someone who commits a murder? They are a murderer. Likewise, Paul says, if you commit sexual immorality, verse 3, you are sexually immoral, verse 5. If you commit impure acts, verse 3, you are an impure person, verse 5. If you are coveting other human beings for sexual gratification, you are an idolater, verse 5. Paul has taken three actions that God forbids, and he looks at the Christians and he goes, hey... If you're calling yourself a Christian and you are consistently doing these things, you're not a Christian. You're a pervert, not a disciple. You are an idolater, not a worshiper. You are unclean, not a saint. And no matter what you say, you have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Which means in the day of judgment, you will hear this verse ringing in your ears. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. you might be sitting there right now and just saying, oh, wait, hold on a second. God is a God of love. I've tried really hard. He's going to forgive me. After all, once saved, always saved. It doesn't really matter how I live. To which I say with the apostle, verse six, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partners with them. Because of these things. What things? Sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, foolishness, foolish talk, uh, filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking. Not only should you stop expecting an inheritance, you should start expecting judgment. Verse 6 Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes on people, real people, called here the sons of disobedience men and women who decided that it was okay to flirt or make out with strangers or go to massage parlors or watch adultery in their movies or stare at actors pretending to have sexual relations or have sexual relations with their fiance when they're just engaged or pleasure themselves to their own fantasies or retell every crude joke they hear or make lurid comments about every woman who walks past. Oh friend, do not be deceived. Never let the perseverance of the saints lure you into the presumption of a sinner. If you are not killing sin, it is killing you. And it will ultimately kill you forever. Christian, you simply cannot go on sexually sinning and have any shred of integrity to to call yourself a Christian. If you're saying, well, you know, once saved, always saved in your heart, while you're in happy partnership with sexual sinners in your actions, you are deceived. Deceived. Today is the day to repent. If there's some little head in your, or some little voice in your head telling you, well, just, just one more day of pleasure, then I'll deal with this. Friend, be like Joseph running from Potiphar's wife. Get up and run. If you refuse to repent today, what confidence do you have that you're going to repent tomorrow? God calls on you to do business with him now. Oh, there's forgiveness available. There's hope for renewal and a turning away from these sins. But not if you're going to hang on to them. Not if you refuse to turn back. Not if you're only partly repenting. I'll tell you a little bit about this, but I'll keep this secret. No, be done with the deception. Be done with the self-deception. Our church has experienced sudden deaths. Is it fair for me to say? How do you know you're going to have tomorrow to repent? How do you know? You don't. Wrath is around the corner for every sexually immoral pervert and idolater, for every crude joker. Do not be among them. Look at what he says in chapter 5, verse 14. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. It is time to come out of the shadows and into the light. The solution to the sins of Sexually acting out or sexually perverse speech or not a chastity belt and a mouth guard. These sins come out of your heart. Jesus made that perfectly clear. Luke 6:45: out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Started in your heart. Jesus, again, Mark chapter 7, verse 21: for from within, out of the heart of man, comes sexual immorality, adultery coveting, sensuality. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. The source of your sexual sins is not outside of you. It is in you. The source of these sins is in your heart, which means the solution to these sins must occur in your heart. The solution is not to try harder or deny the reality of impending judgment. The solution is to come to Christ. This is the only way to find heart change. Come mourning over your sins and get blessed. Come rejecting all your idols and be refreshed. Come repudiating your self indulgences and find the life that you've been searching for. There's no other way to come and no other way to avoid sure and certain judgment. Listen, the solution is the same for everybody here, whether you are professing faith in Jesus or not. If you're a man or a woman who tells the world you're a Christian, but you are enslaved to sexual sin, come to Jesus. If you're a man or a woman who makes no claims of allegiance to Christ, yet know that you are a sexual sinner, come to Jesus. As a friend of mine often says, come all the way to Jesus. You can knock over that wooden idol in your backyard or smash all the screens in your house, and so you should do if they're your idols, but you cannot change your heart. That takes the work of God, a work that God is willing and able to do if you'll turn from your sins and look to Jesus. The woman at the well who who had cohabited with six different guys, one after another, from Jesus was offered a fountain of living waters. The adulterer David, when he repented, was offered a clean heart from God. The lustful Samson, at the end, was given purpose to his life. There is hope for you, friend. There is abounding hope if you want to turn away from your sexual sins of word and deed. Sexual sinners are not hopeless cases to an almighty God. That's why he's the only one to go to in order to truly change. So flee to him now. Run to him now. Do business with the one who sees all of you and and is willing to forgive you and is willing to restore you. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Can you say, that's who I was, but it ain't who I am. In a moment, we're going to sing a song, a song we relearned last week. It's called, We Confess. The song is made up of two parts, right? In the first part, we confess our sins to the Lord. And I'm going to invite you to just to do that as, as, we're, as we're singing our confession, to sing our confession of our sexual sins. And after we've sung the first part of the song, I'm going to come back and I'm going to lead us in a, in a prayer. Because I really want you to make a decisive break today. I don't want you to leave this backyard planning to go back to normal. So I don't, I'm not like one of these people that thinks, you know, one great public act of renunciation cures everything. I don't believe that. I don't think you do either. But I also don't believe we should just carry on with our merry ways. And sometimes it serves us. Take a strong stand against our sins. Do you believe that if you do not repent of your sexual immorality, you will go to hell? Ponder that as we sing. Please stand with us.